Isaiah chapter 44. And I'm going to read quite a few verses, starting at verse 6 of Isaiah 44. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay it out before me. What has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come? Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down in terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool, works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry, loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line makes an outline with a marker, he roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. Their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offences like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things. 
who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Let's just pray with those powerful words ringing in our ears. Lord God, we acknowledge together that you alone are God. You are the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who stretched out the earth by yourself. Lord, we're sorry that so many of us, as your creatures, have brought you down to our size, something we can manage, we can hold in our right hand, something that is a lie, that is not what you are. We ask you, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears this morning. Help us to learn something, just whatever you can reveal to us, Lord, and will choose to reveal to us. Of, help us to learn what you are like. Open our eyes and our ears to the truth about our God. We are here, Lord. Speak. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. I want that passage to sort of ring in your ears a bit and stay with it because it's a wonderful, powerful passage in Isaiah that God speaks to his people and speaks about idolatry. You remember the second commandment? We talked about the Ten Commandments uh, a few months ago, maybe nearly a year ago. The second commandment says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's a funny word, isn't it? God says he's a jealous God. But it's a jealousy that is totally righteous. It's really a zeal for his glory. He is jealous that it should never be compromised. That his glory, his uh, magnificent perfection should never be compromised by us. He's jealous to protect his glory. It's always been understood that this second commandment, don't make any idols, doesn't just mean don't worship false gods. It also means that God does not want any statues or pictures or idols to be used as a means of worship to him. Now that could sound a bit extreme because people say surely we enjoy music, we enjoy looking at creation and I think that's okay. It stimulates our worship. But there is a barrier which we mustn't cross in which we try and represent God with an actual image or idol and we sort of say this is what he's like. Aaron made a very fatal mistake when he did that and he carved a golden calf, a golden bull probably and he was trying to focus people that our God is a strong God our God is a God of might and power and so he made an image of a bull but it was an appalling travesty about God because God is so much more than just strong and big and all it manifested was a grotesque distortion that God was like some animal And actually, the result was that the people behaved like animals. They began to see almost sexual potency as part of their worship and had a virtual orgy. Did have an orgy, actually, not a virtual one, uh, as part of their worship. It was was a horrible aberration. And that is where idolatry leads people. God says, you are not to make an idol to try and capture what I'm like. You're not to make anything and say, this is what God is like. This is me. Now, why is there that fundamental prohibition which comes throughout the Bible about the living God? Well, basically, 
any idol or image will dishonour God because he is the creator of all things. And if you just try and sum him up as a star or the sun or uh, an animal like a bull or a tiger or something or a fish or a shark, or if you try and say this is God or what God's like, you completely offend his glory, totally. And actually you conceal more than you release, re- uh, reveal. You conceal more of the truth than you reveal. You distort God. Well, you might say, well, okay, John, we don't worship idols. We don't worship images today. Well, actually, to be honest, more of that goes on than we would acknowledge. Uh, I think in our pluralistic society, in our postmodern age, and our new agey sort of society, there's an awful lot of idolatry. There's an awful lot of worshipping images. There's quite a, even a resurgent, to some extent, even in some uh, church quarters, of, of overemphasis on something that somehow sums up God. It's supposed to aid our worship, but in the end we end up worshipping it. And there are denominations that would uh, perhaps drift into that. Uh, even uh, Roman Catholicism can at times do that, stray into idolatry in, a, in, a, in an apparently well-intentioned attempt to pass on something about, say, the sufferings of Christ. But in the end, a crucifix can end up as an idol. This stuff can happen. But far more common is that we just make mental images of God in, in our own way. You often hear people say things like this, I don't like to think of God as a judge. Well, <laughs> you haven't got a freedom to think of God as how you like. You've got to see what God is like. And you've got to respond to what he reveals about himself. People say, my God would never behave like that. And, and you can even get Christians talking like that. My God wouldn't do whatever. Uh, and uh, you have to just be careful. It, it, make sure it is the God of the Bible, the God revealed, not a God we're making in our own image. We're just making a mental picture of what God's like and saying that's how he is. Now, that's a bit negative, but there's a big positive about this commandment, not to make idols, and it's this. It provokes us to realise that God is transcendent. That means he is beyond anything you can understand. And I want to take a half hour or so now just to, to lift your heart and mind beyond everything you understand. Because we do inevitably try and contain God a bit. We all do it. Try and box him in. We try and understand him. Well, that's not a bad thing, but we try and say, well, he's like this, he's like that, and we, we sort, of, sort of box him into something that we can hold in our right hand, although perhaps we don't go to that extreme like in Isaiah there. Something we just carve and make. But we can't do that. The positive about this second commandment is don't make idols because you cannot imagine what I am like. That's what God says. You cannot imagine what I am like. You cannot even get on the edge of me. Don't you even try to represent me. Don't try and do it. I am jealous. You will lose my glory. Let me be what I am. Let me reveal to you what I am. And just react to my revelation. Don't try and capture it. Don't try and put it me in a box, you could say. God is not like us. Oh. It's obvious. Yeah, it's obvious, but just let it sink in. God is not like us. He is not a human being. He is a being, but he is the creator. He is a very different, 
order of being. Human beings are made in his image, but we cannot begin to reflect all that God is. And we are not to make God in our image. All man-made images are going to be terribly tainted by sin and particularly limited by us and our being of being a human being. And so we fall far short of the being of God. We've got to humbly bow and bow our minds to what God has said about himself. Now, one of the fundamental things, I do love this, though I struggle and feel nervous even as I touch it, because I think you're touching big stuff and holy stuff. One of the fundamental things about God is a lot about God is other than us. There is an otherness about God, an otherness that he's not like us. Theologians call it the incommunicable attributes of God. And that means they're things that we haven't got an analogy for in our lives. They can't be communicated to us in any way that is more than just receiving them as truth. We can understand some of them, but we can't really have an analogy to them. We can't get our heads around them. They are powerful and wonderful. In more modern slang, we could call them mind-blowing facts about God. (laughs) And they are. I just want to look at three this morning. I want to look at the fact that God is totally independent. God is totally independent. Now, many of us would like to be independent, but we are in no way independent. We struggle wanting to be independent. Learn now, you, human little being, are never going to be independent. You can't even survive without oxygen. God doesn't need oxygen. He made oxygen. You can't survive without liquid in your body. You can't survive without food. Actually, far beyond that, you are dependent on all sorts of things just to exist. You are dependent on other people, whether you like it or not, all the time. And above all, you are totally dependent on God. He holds your very breath in his hands. He gave you life and he will decide when your life ends. You are totally dependent upon God for every second of your life. Every second. You are in no way independent. You might as well wake up to that glorious fact. And it is a glorious fact. You are not independent. God, on the other hand, is totally independent. As I said, he needs no oxygen. He doesn't get dehydrated. He is not dependent on anything else. His only ground of existence is in himself. God is accountable to absolutely no one other than his own perfections and his own character. Every single thing in the universe is made by him, but he is not made. He did not have a beginning and he will not have an end. All things, everything, is ultimately sustained by God and is ultimately accountable in the broadest sense of the word to him. He will decide what to do with everything from the farthest galaxy to you. Everything belongs to him. But he himself is totally independent. In Genesis 1 verse 1 it says, In the beginning, God. (laughs) Four words. No one made God. People say, oh, well, who made God? That is just 
breaking the second commandment, basically. It's trying to see God in your own image. God is where every buck stops. No one made God. He has always existed. He doesn't move in a way that we understand. He doesn't, he isn't like, well, he has to have a beginning. No, he doesn't. No more than he has to have oxygen. He's just a totally different order of being. He is the creator of all things. The prime motivator of everything. Psalm 115 and verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That's God. He does not answer to you. He does not answer to a higher rule called fair play. He has no constraints other than who he is in himself. He is totally independent. John 5, verse 26. This isn't on the screen. Don't worry. I know that. John 5, 26. Jesus says... As the Father has life in himself. Just hear that phrase. As the Father has life in himself. God is the source of life and it's in himself. Everything else, and we talked about this on the creation one, the first one, there, the God who is there. Life is one of the big proofs of a creator. But God himself has life in himself. He is the source of all life. From the moss on the rock to us. He is the source of life. Nothing gave life to God. He has life in himself. Acts 17, Paul is preaching and he sums up these truths beautifully. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And then listen to Revelation 4, verse 11. I just love scriptures. In heaven, you and I will be singing this with the myriads there. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they they were created and have their being. Just leave that verse up for a moment. Just let that sink in. That is God. That's why we worship him. You created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. That's powerful, isn't it? It's totally true. God is independent, self-existent, and it's awesome. It's how he is. Let's look at another one. God is infinite. Infinite. What's that mean? He is without limitation. God has no limitations. Now, this is true in a number of ways. It's true in relation to time. Just look at Psalm 90. Actually, it's verse 2, I think. But never mind, it's a little misprint, a little typo. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. (laughs) Can you cope with that with your brain? Aren't we totally bound by time? We are totally locked into time. It's like oxygen. It's just as essential. We are totally, brothers and sisters, we are. We don't realise it sometimes, but God is not. He has no time problems at all. He is outside of time, yet he can move into time and work within it and be outside it as well. 
Some of the ways we could describe it is that God lives in eternal nowness. But I'm not sure that that isn't just an anthropomorphic way of saying it. But, you know, it's the best we can do. He is in eternal nowness. Everything happens at once for God. Is one way you could describe it. He describes himself as I am. He's I am. He's always in the present. And when he talks, he doesn't talk in the past about us. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac didn't happen 2,000, 3,000 years ago to me. That happened all at once. God, God is an eternal nowness. It's mind-blowing. He's not limited by time. Now, we are completely the other extreme. Time weighs heavy. At my back, I hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. It's a poem. You know, it's like it. you hear it breathing down your neck. Time, time. You're going to die. You're getting older. Time. <laughs> Tomorrow, lunch, time. No, no, no. God is outside of time. And I believe in that holds many of the mysteries that we simply cannot understand. How does God deal with my 21st century sins in his first century son's death? Well, God isn't a God of centuries in one level, is he? The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world and when we see him in heaven, his wounds are as though they were freshly slain. And yet, in a sense, he did come into time. Of course he did. How is it that you can have truths about predestination and truths about human free will and responsibility? I'm not even going to go there in detail. But I believe the answers lie in God and who he is. I don't believe they're contradictions in the end. I believe the infinity of God is the answer to most of these things. And we perhaps will understand more of their harmonisation when we get to be in heaven with him. But I wonder if we'll fully understand it because we will never be God even though we are with him. Here's another limitless aspect of God. He's not limited by space. God is present everywhere. Look at Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I love it. Don't I feel, what are you talking about, you human creature? See, this is another problem for us. It's a totally different concept. To what, can you be in two places at once? No. As most parents say to kids many times during their upbringing, I can't be in two places at once. You know, we say it to all sorts of times. We say it all the time, don't we? I can't be in two places at once. Well, it's true. We can't be. God is limitless when it comes to space. Absolutely limitless. Do I not fill heaven and earth? He can be in time and space and in a sense out of it at the same time. Watching it, if you like, as well as in it. Now this is awesome to us. God knows all. He sees all. There is nowhere out of his reach. And when you really, really see that, it is awesome truth that just impacts your life. The psalmist sort of got it in Psalm 139. It's not on the screen. Oh Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain. That's right. Where can I go from your spirit? 
Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I step on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. God is everywhere. He can see everything. He's not bounded by space or time. And that is both reassuring and disturbing, isn't it? Reassuring because you can't get away from his presence. Even the dark is as light to him. And he is with us wherever. He will never leave you or forsake you. God is able to look after you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. There's no hole too deep, no place too dark where God can't see you. He can even see people in hell. He knows he is present everywhere. Now, mostly that's reassuring, especially if we're his children and know him. But it is disturbing in the best possible way. There is no escape from God. Zero escape. There is nothing you can think. It says here, he knows our thoughts. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Actually, we're touching omniscience as well. Actually, God's knowledge and his ability to to see everything means you can't fool God once, anywhere. Everything is known to God. He knows our thoughts. He sees our every action, even our secret action. There is no limit in space. There's no limit in power. God is all-powerful. Look at Luke and uh, Mark's references here in the Gospel. Luke 1.37 For nothing is impossible with God. (laughs) Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, when you say this, people make silly comments like, can God make a rock that he can't lift up? You know, can make a, or something like that, isn't it? Can God make a rock that's too heavy for him to carry some rubbish? Well, I mean, what that is, is just anthropomorphic. You're thinking of God like you again. You're breaking the second commandment, basically. Actually, that is just a nonsense question. Actually, though, there are things that God has sort of, said, showed us, he doesn't do or can't do. There are limits, if you like, in a strange sort of way. Mysterious and wonderful ones. God cannot lie. God cannot deny himself or his character or his perfections. Those are wonderful truths. But actually, above all, we need to hear the the heart of this truth. God has all power and can do anything. God can do anything. And actually, even what we call the laws of nature are just God's ordinary way of operating. We call them the laws of nature. But they're how he has chosen to ordinarily sustain and maintain creation. He doesn't feel bound by them. He can do miracles, as we call them. God can do the impossible. He doesn't have to be bound by the laws of nature. They aren't even laws to him. They're just his ordinary way of providentially sustaining things. Bruce Milne says of this powerful truth of God's omnipotence, this, it calls for an attitude of utter confidence in the midst of all the impossibilities of human history and our personal circumstances. That's good, I like that. When we realise God is all-powerful, it calls for an attitude of utter confidence 
in the midst of all the impossibilities of human history and personal circumstances. Deep down, nothing, you know this, nothing is impossible for God. Now, yeah, it may raise you questions. You say, well, that raises questions for me, John. I, God doesn't seem scared about that, and I can't be. But God says, nothing is impossible for me. And you have to receive that and let your faith feed on it. He's not bound by any of the limits to his power that we would recognize in ourselves at all. But God's infinite nature is also true with regard to knowledge, which we've talked about a little bit. God is all-knowing. Just look at Hebrews 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. <laughs> Come on, this is, do you believe this? I believe this. It's quite scary, isn't it? I mean, this is behind judgment. This is what, one of the factors behind God's judgment. God's judgment will be fair and just because it will be totally informed. Totally informed. Every detail. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Well, praise God, we can have our sins forgiven on God's terms. <laughs> we can have him say he will remember them no more. That's a strange phrase because I don't think it actually means that he has absolutely no a total blank mind. What it means is a covenant word that he will blot out the consequences of them and all the effects of them that there will be no, it will be as though we have not done them. They will not be brought to mind ever again. They will have no uh, consequence for us. They will be totally removed and forgiven. The, the judgment for them will be totally removed and blotted out. And they have no bearing on what God will do with us on the day of judgment. I don't know how other words to use it. God is able to do that. He's able to totally forgive us our sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west, which is, from our point of view, an infinite distance. But God himself knows every detail. He knows all that needs to be forgiven. He knows all that's wrong with us as well as what's right with us. He knows the balance of our lives. Now, the fact is, there are many mysteries that we don't know. But they're not mysteries to God. God knows the origin of life. He knows about fossils. He knows about dinosaurs, galaxies. He knows about DNA. He knows about stuff we haven't even discovered, that we might discover if he allows us to. God knows stuff that we will never know. He knows the answer to every puzzle there is. There are no enigmas to God. There are no puzzles to God. He knows everything. And therefore, we have to have an attitude of trust in God. We can't just say, I want to know everything you know. We trust the one who knows everything. Amen? That's how it works. There are mysteries. It says it in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. In other words, what God reveals to us, we need to grasp with both hands. We need to enjoy every scrap he gives us, and he gives us much. We need to enjoy what he's revealed. We need to hold on to it. They belong to us. God has imparted stuff to us. And then we rejoice in that, and we hold it, and we share it with our children. We share it with our friends. But there are things that belong to God. And if we don't understand them and know them, then we trust him who does. 
We don't keep on agitated and, and, and fretful and, and angry. Why does I understand all these things? Why can't I know that? No, no, I know him who does know all things. Hallelujah. And the third one, God is immutable. I'm only laughing at the word. It's not a word you use every day at school, is it? God is immutable. That means he is unchanging, forever the same, always consistent, always consistent. Look at these wonderful scriptures, just a whole range of three or four of them. Malachi 3, verse 6. Woo, I've gone all fuzzy. Shall I change this other one? Okay, no, thanks. Malachi 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I think that's a brilliant verse, because it reminds us that we are totally dependent on the fact God doesn't change. God is not uh, just sort of changing his mind regularly and saying, oh, I'll be loving today, now I'll be horrible tomorrow, and you know, maybe I won't forgive them after all, and 101 other things. God is not like that. God is totally consistent. And that's why we're not destroyed, because his mercies endure forever. Well, here's another one. James 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. I mean, shadows are so much part of our life, and they don't shift, don't they, and change as the sun goes behind a cloud or as it moves across the sky and lights come on and off. But God is nothing like that. He's not like shifting shadows. He is totally unchanging and consistent. Or Psalm 33, verse 11. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. I love that verse. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Isn't that good? Doesn't that make you feel good? That's God. His plans are never compromised. In the end, they may be delayed by our perspective in our time-space world like the children of Israel fouled up and spent 40 years going around in the desert. It's not really a problem to God's plans ultimately. They're lost, not his, if you could like. And the purposes of his heart are through all generations. That's our God. Now people sometimes say, but doesn't God seem to sort of change a bit in the Bible? Well, there's a truth here that God is not immovable and static in a dead way, like a dead weight. He actually has movement, as best we can describe it. God has movement. The Bible speaks of him coming and going. There are times when you are more aware of him and less aware of him. There are purposes he works out in our context of time and space. And to some extent, he responds to us. We change, and within the dynamic of time and space, he responds. So the Bible talks about him repenting doesn't mean he repents of his sin. It means he appears to change his mind. But it's often sort of understandable. It's not that strange a thing. So, for example, Nineveh was going to be judged. Clearly a very sinful, bad place. God said, the time's come to end that. I'm going to judge it. I want you to warn them. And on the world's side, on the ground, should we say, not the world, on the ground, Jonah hears that word. He goes to Nineveh and he says, Nineveh, you're for it. And Jonah didn't like Nineveh anyway. God's going to judge you, you are a foul, sinful people, and you are about to meet your end. And he could have whispered, and I'm delighted. But that's what he said. But, but in response to that, the people in Nineveh said, oh no, God save us. Oh God, have mercy on us. That's literally what they did. God, have mercy, don't destroy us. And he says, God said, he repented. He said, okay, I won't. 
Now, that's the consistency of God's character of mercy. And also, I don't think God was wrong-footed and suddenly, from his perspective, surprised. But in the dynamic of time and space, he responded to their, forg- their repentance and forgave them. And actually, Jonah was very cross. Because there were two things he was cross about. One, he didn't like them. And he thought it was great if God fried them all up. And the second thing is it made him look a bit silly because he just said he was going to be judged. And now God's going to be nice to them. Oh, I've just done this judgment sermon. And, and so, so, you know, actually, that was his problem. But it, God ch- responded to their change. Now, thank God he's like that. He's a God of movement. But he is not a God of change in his own character. God's purposes don't change. His character doesn't change. His truth doesn't change. His promises don't change. A.W. Pink puts it like this. God cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. It's sort of... Sort of truism in a way, but it's sometimes good when people put it. You know, God doesn't change for the better and he doesn't change for the worse. He doesn't change. He is eternally consistent. Now that's relevant to us in lots of ways. It's relevant when we're standing on God's promises. It's relevant when we're dependent on his mercy. But it's also relevant when we just read our Bibles. Because you can, the Bible has a historical context. I mean, the context is thousands of years ago for most of it. At least 2,000 years ago, even for the most recent parts of it. And so its, it's context is geographically different from us too. It's, it's the Near East. It's a long time ago and it's the Near East. And so we can often feel that couldn't that be a bit remote from us? Uh, but I tell you, that remoteness is an illusion. It's a, a remoteness is an illusion of our limitations and our human perspective. The link between us and the people of the Bible is not about geography. It's not about which century you live in. It's about God. And God hasn't changed. The link is God. Isn't it? And he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. And that brings the Bible right onto our doorstep today. Right onto our patch. We can fellowship with this same God. We trust in the same God and his word. We put faith in this living God. We stand on his promises. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. The same Saviour, the same Lord. This is immensely comforting. This Bible is realities for us to dip into. This Jesus hasn't changed. This gospel hasn't changed. God's purposes haven't changed. God's plans haven't changed. His promises still stand. And amidst all the complexities of our age, and actually of any age, that is a very important truth, the immutability of our God. And it brings the Bible right onto your plate today. This is the same God. It's very comforting, and it's also very challenging. It challenges me. Because if it's the same God we're dealing with, and it is, then we need to have the same experiences to some degree. This is a God who can part the Red Sea. This is a God who can raise the dead. This is a God who can open blind eyes. This is a God who judges sin. And he hasn't changed. He gets angry about sin. This is a God of infinite mercy. Hallelujah. This is a God of love. Hallelujah. This is a God who has promised 
amazing promises in his son, Jesus Christ. They're all yes and amen in Christ. And he's a God who wants to operate, if I can put it that way, in the same way with us. Why shouldn't he heal today? He does heal. He's always been a healing God. You know, why doesn't he, you know, why can't break the laws of nature? Well, just because we've got all clever and scientific, God can break the laws of nature. He does it all the time. They're not laws to him. He made them. He can turn water into wine. He can still turn water into wine. He can, you know, he can put money in fish's mouths if he wants to. He can, he can heal. Hallelujah. It's the same God. It's the same God. He hasn't gone to sleep. He hasn't got old-fashioned. He hasn't struggling to keep up with the high-tech world. It's God. He's, he's in charge of the whole thing. He's immutable. In himself, he has not changed. Ah, ages have changed. Our information, knowledge changes. We change culture. But God doesn't change. And we have to get hold of that. This is a living God and a living word, isn't it? And it makes a challenge for all of us in me. I feel challenged. I feel as I'm preparing this. I feel God's saying to me, I am the same. I do not change. I don't change. Don't try and box me up. I think this opens up enormous possibilities and enormous challenges, as I'm saying. Enormous issues, if you like. That God is immutable. He's infinite. He's independent. He is our God. Aren't you glad God is really God? It's not something like we can get him all sussed and we can sort of get the parameters straight. We can get our little modern chisel. I mean, they were chiseling away in Isaiah. But, you know, and it's mocking him. So he gets out the compass. Oh, yeah, it makes it God. Well, we do it. Might use science. and Well, get it all. I think he's like this and like that. No, let him be what he is. He's God. You can't hold him in your right hand. That, that's a powerful verse in Isaiah. The thing you hold in your right hand is a lie. That's what it said. I don't know if you noticed it. He, the people should wake up and say, oh, this which I hold in my right hand is a lie. God is God. God is the creator. God is the one without limitations. He is the unchanging one. The one of the Bible And he's still active and the same God today.